Catch up with the entire season of Pandora anytime on the CW app or download it on iTunes. You can also watch Pandora in Canada on the Space Channel. Welcome to Unboxing Pandora, the podcast where we take a behind-the-scenes look at the hit CW show, Pandora. On today's show, we're joined by Pandora composers, Joe Kramer and Pinka Kunifer. Joe has an impressive resume as a composer for such blockbuster movies as Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation, and Jack Reacher, while Pinka has worked in film, television, and video games, including the score for the 2010 video game Prince of Persia. We talk about their journey in Hollywood, what it's like to work together on Pandora, and a deep-dive examination of the score. I also wanted to point out that the Season 1 score for Pandora is currently available through La La Land Records. It's jam-packed with material, some of which you'll hear in this podcast, and also has an impressive supply of information about the score and the show. My name is Peter Holmstrom. I'm the writer's assistant for Pandora, and I hope you enjoy this podcast. So Joe and Pinka, thank you so much for being here today. It's Thank you for great, having us. Yeah, it's our great honor to be your guests. It's, this is going to be a lot of fun. I'm very excited. Um, so the first question I, I have for you guys is a question I've had for a number of years. Um, when I was growing when I was uh, in college, in undergrad college, I went to uh, study film at Portland State University. And when I was there, I have this vivid memory of being in a class. And some guy, I don't even know his name, but the teacher had asked him, oh, what do you want to do with your life? And, the, and this kid had said, oh, I'd really like to be a, a film composer. And the teacher, this was a philosophy class or something, but the teacher had said, oh, really? How, how, how does that even work? How do you become a composer? And this poor kid just looked at him with the blankest expression I've ever seen. In <laughs> as if he had never even thought about that question before. And I felt so bad. And then I started thinking about it. And I was like, you know, I've read a lot of books. I've seen a lot of movies. I have no idea how somebody becomes a composer of film or television. So, Joe, Pinka, you're both working professionals, very successful. How do you become a composer? Luck. Luck. Good answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll go first, Pinka, and then you can correct me. <laughs> um, <laughs> for me, it's all who you know. Yep. And connections get you your first jobs and then skill hopefully is what keeps you working mm -hmm. once you've broken into the room of you know professional work in, in show show business so i was very lucky in that um i grew up in a small enough town that um my high school was actually junior high and high school in the same building yeah and so as a seventh grader at the age of 12 um, I was actually hanging out with 18 year olds who were obsessed with making movies in particular, a filmmaker named Scott storm, who I work with even now. And Scott would make films on super eight. This was just before home video became ubiquitous. And he wrote a story that needed a child actor in it. And he cast me in the film and I was always into music and my father was a hobbyist musician and we had a home recording studio with a four track and some synthesizers. And so I asked Scott, you know, what he did for music on these Super 8 movies uh, because he had a sound camera. So he actually did dialogue and sound effects and sound design on these eight millimeter films. And, you know, he usually sort of robbed his record collection he jumped at the chance to have original music written for the films. Yeah. And so I started writing music for those. Uh, when he went to college, he became friends with some other filmmakers who then went on to make, who then, and then we all sort of made our way to LA and through those connections, I was able to get my first opportunities as a professional composer doing a pilot for NBC and Warner Brothers television called The Underworld. And that led to The Way of the Gun, mm -hmm. which led to, uh 10 or 12 years of work uh doing tv films for the hallmark channel mm. and it also was the catalyst for my relationship working relationship with the creator of pandora mark altman mm. who had seen wave the gun and loved the score and we became fast friends and that's sort of how i got into film business how i got into show business how i got into film scoring um and the catalyst for my interest in it beyond scott storm and that 
the those Super 8 films was also my love of John Williams. Yeah. You know, those were the first albums I bought on vinyl nice. were, you know, the Star Wars score, the Superman score, and Raiders. Yes. So, uh, Penka, what was your, how did you get into it? I don't know if I've ever heard your story about how you That's got into it. Your story is amazing. So actually, I'm astounded because at exactly at the age of 12, my mom had a friend who was a theater producer for kids' matinees of theater. And uh, they were like talking and I distinctly remember the moment in time because the producer was like, oh, I know your daughter's a pianist and she also composes and that's very cute. And, and uh, what do you think about the idea of your, your daughter composing incidental music for theater for my show? Because I think it would be very cute to have this girl very nerdy girl playing the piano as part of the show. And my mom said, yes, and this is uh, my very distinct beginning at age 12, composing tiny little pieces like eight bars or 16 bars of incidental music, which I arranged for my friends um, on percussion and flute. And the percussion was like glockenspiel and, you know, a little snare drum, like, you know, it's all kind of kids play. Mm. But I started thinking of myself as a composer and that gave me a sense of identity because I was a nerdy, lonely, kind of awkward girl. And uh, I really started composing music and uh, all my music always had some kind of story or title or, you know, uh, the Four Seasons or some, some kind of a specific narrative um, element to it. I come from a kind of big family of storytellers. All my grandmothers are big, amazing storytellers. My mom published a couple of books and so on. Mm. So um, I went, I finished my conservatory in Bulgaria, then immigrated to America when the communism collapsed, went mm. to Duke, got a PhD in com composition, but was always drawn to composing for theater and little documentaries that the local filmmakers were making. So uh, when I, did my immigration, I just basically was free to choose and I chose to come to Hollywood like so many other people just with a you know bag of dreams and uh, really not knowing anybody except I knew Patrick Williams. Patrick Williams was an Emmy winning TV composer and film composer and he became my first mentor. I knew him from Duke. And um, I began looking um, to connect with people and my first posse was the filmmakers at AFI, the American Film Institute. Oh, nice. And I began scoring their um, graduation thesis films. And again, my musicality and kind of knowing a lot of styles um, basically uh, was complemented by my passion for storytelling and my kind of dramatic sense. Because really to, to be a film composer, you have to have these two things, really be fluid with composing in different styles and also uh, have just a real good sense for drama and storytelling because mm -hmm. what we do is we we complement the story with our music nice that's fantastic i have to tell you i i went to afi that's where i got my graduate degree oh very good very awesome of course by you know when i was there the short films did not have stellar uh soundtracks so <laughs> <laughs> clearly there in, in the golden era the golden era um now, Pinka, before we get into, obviously, we're here to talk about Pandora, but uh, I'd, I'd love to hear, because looking at your resume, uh, Pinka, you you work a lot in, you've worked in short films like you just talked about, but you've also done video games, you've done features, you've done documentaries. Um, walk us through a bit of the process for the various types of, of projects that you've worked on. Do you have kind of one system, or do you treat each project in a different way? Um, I think for both Joe and I, and I'd love to hear what Joe will sell also, it really is all about the project and all about the story. And every filmmaker or writer has a very specific vision mm. of what they uh, imagine in, in the story. And uh, also, all, all of our collaborators have a very particular taste. You know, mm. they like certain music, they respond, it resonates with them. So my first job um, as, a, as a collaborative composer is to find out as much as I can about the vision, the creative vision, just the storytelling vision of my collaborator. And then my second job, which is equally important, is to understand what kind of music they love, what is the music that's going to resonate with that particular project, and begin these conceptual conversations. You know, let's just see what music is going to go well. Think, tell me about a couple of uh, style guides. Tell me about a couple of prototypes. And I, I do this every time on every project, having these conceptual conversations, looking at some scores that we both think are going to be uh, sort of in the same tone that we're looking to establish. So it really begins with establishing the world, you know, begins with a big picture first. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I'm big on, yeah, I was gonna say, I'm big on conceptualizing as well, um, because it sort of gives me a hook that I can hang the score on. Mm. 
And sometimes it's a, a story concept. Sometimes it's an aesthetic concept. So in the case, say, of Mission Impossible, um, I was searching for a way to get into the score. You know, Dustin Hoffman talked about with um, Rain Man playing mm -hmm. his character, searching for a hook that he could latch onto that unlocked the character for him, a key. And for him, I, as I recall correctly, it was something about the way that Raymond said uh, Wapner, you know, Judge Wapner. Mm. And when he, when he found that, the whole character unlocked for him and he had it. And Hank sort of talks about it for Forrest Gump, that when he met the kid who plays the, the young Forrest Gump and that kid's way of speaking unlocked the whole character of Forrest for Tom Hanks. Mm. Well, for me, I look for that with the score. And sometimes, like I said, it's a story concept. In the case of Mission, it was this concept of using only instruments that Lalo Schifrin could have used for the score for the pilot episode. Mm. And at the same time, that was a restraint. It was also liberating because I didn't have to worry about any, you know, I didn't have to, I had my choice of sounds was established for me. Mm. And then all I had, all I had to do was figure out how to tell the story using those sounds. In the case of Pandora, um, you know, it's funny in the case of Pandora, Penka sort of had it more difficult than on a normal show, because in terms of, you know, satisfying people, not only did she have to satisfy Mark and the producers, but I was also being a kind of a tough because I had this somewhat uh, snobby attitude of solving all of our problems as much as possible with music and not just production. Mm. And so uh, I was forcing her to, I was shaking up probably some of the things that other composers ask her to do uh, or other directors and producers ask her to do. I was sort of saying, no, I don't want that. I want a certain approach and a certain style. So in order, and of course, you know, I'm sort of tr trying to be funny. I wasn't draconian about it. Um, <laughs> but uh, as the show went along, you know, uh, she started bringing stuff to the table that was just amazing. And we were incorporating that into the show. So, uh, you know, at the start, because I had done the pilot by myself, um, I had sort of set the tone and then was, uh, you know, uh, establishing a tone that Penka was fitting into. And then once we got that, it worked the other way around. Um, for Pandora, to me, the big concept was um, each culture should have its own musical texture. Mm -hmm. The humans, Raylan, um, you know, uh, the, the, protector the Parallax release. Corporation, you know. And then the protectors, which were the only characters in the film that, or in the, in the story, that I allowed the use of a human voice as a musical element. Because mm -hmm. um, I thought it would be sort of clever to have the only human element be the protectors. Mm. And because of our budget and our schedule, everything else is realized electronically, either with obvious synthesizer tones or with us using sampled orchestral instruments to tell the story um so yeah so walk me through a bit of the dynamic of of working together i'm sorry you touched on it a bit there but but joe you just said that you you did the pilot solo and and pinka was brought in to to do the series but what's that working relationship like um the i would say that the principal thing in the beginning was getting the pilot done. And while I was working on the pilot, and actually even before that, while Mark was uh, getting the pilot cut, I was um, developing musical ideas, but also speaking with Penka. And, you know, Penka's much more uh, diligent in some ways than I am. I like to score the visual element itself mm -hmm. the, the the cut of the show yeah i'm not as big on reading the scripts i had uh the bible and some artwork the artwork helped because i'm visual mm -hmm. and then i i was sort of developing ideas through conversation with mark and 
looking at the uh, story, the visual elements in the Bible. But I wasn't really worried so much about reading the script. And then when I got the show, I started writing to the picture. And fortunately, because of our schedule, we had a little more time for the pilot than we did for the other episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was able to do some stuff, send it to Mark, get some feedback, and then make revisions and, and move on. Penko very intelligently reads the scripts. You know, I don't want to speak for you, Penko, but I know you read the scripts, you, you start composing based on the, on the script. And she was sending me ideas and we were discussing different approaches. You know, there's a certain, um, there's certain kinds, there's, there's certain composers working in, in show, in movies today who have certain approaches. And I prefer a more classic approach the kind maybe favored by John Williams, uh, uh, Jerry Goldsmith. Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, Elmer Bernstein, Bernard Herman. And mm. so I kept uh, really encouraging Penka to pursue those kinds of solutions. And, you know, I think maybe I surprised her a little bit because so many compose, so many projects today want a, a different sound, a more, you know, maybe the kind of sound done more by composers like Hans Zimmer and, mm-hmm. and Junkie XL and Trevor Rabin and, uh, you know, John Powell. And I was pushing more for the slightly more old school approach. And knowing how much Mark liked Star Trek, mm-hmm. you know, I felt safe doing that. Um, so yeah, that sort of takes it up to where Pekka came in. And I would love to hear what, what your point of view on it was, Pekka. Well, first of all, Joe is a fantastic mentor, and I'm so deeply grateful for that mentorship because I had my body of work in television uh, about 10 years ago, uh, So, and then really got deeply into video games. So for me, that was returning to form, to, to score television, and Joe was in, an incredible mentor. Well, I really love the music of the classic film composers that Joe mentioned, and uh, just jumped on the opportunity to to write thematically, to write themes. And also from having scored a lot of games, I love working with the secondary characters, with the supporting characters. So while uh, Joe was busy creating many themes for the protagonists and for the main characters, and uh, I sort of sort of took on myself to compose a couple of uh, themes for the secondary characters, like for instance, Pilar, she's our computer girl. So I had that kind of a hybrid theme for her that has very contemporary modern synthesizer pulse to it, but also has a very emotional violin line. And I love this approach because, uh, you know, to match the secondary characters with the kind of a signature, musical signature that captures their essence. So I did a couple of secondary themes like this, you know, the parallax being very dark and sort of very droning and um, just ominous, always and always dark because they're the nemesis. So, I mean, it could not have been better. Just my return to TV could not have been better because Joe was an amazing mentor um, and um, just uh, kind of guiding me along the way. And uh, and he said, you know, Mark Altman um, really loves Star Trek, Star Wars, and that's, you know, and Starship Troopers, and this is the stylistic framework. And it's just amazing. I mean, I benefited from the fact that Mark and, and Joe have worked on like over 14 or 15 or a couple of dozen projects together over more de- many decades. And I stepped into a relationship that was already really well established. And Joe was my guru and, you know, my, my, he provided such amazing, amazing guidance. But I think once we figured out the, the stylistic framework, the tone, you know, that most, the most of the music is going to be in that very thematic, very melodic style orchestral. And then also we'll have electronic elements. Then we just, you know, the score wrote itself because it's based on so many characters. In a sense, we almost approach it like a Wagnerian, you know, like Wagner had all these sonic signatures for his characters and his operas. And I think very similarly, we did something very similar. Just so each, each character had a sound signature. And uh, when in the episode, the characters were driving a particular scene, we would use that theme so that the score became very thematic and very memorable. Yeah, just to uh, clarify for people at home that might not be familiar, um, when we're talking about classical themes, we're talking about stuff like like John Williams, like those great musical epics, specifically of uh, the 50s and 60s. And the more stuff from today, correct me if I'm wrong here, but what a lot of people are looking for now is more incidental 
music, things that are emphasizing points in the scene itself, but not necessarily so unique that you could whistle it, so to speak. Well, certainly there's that sort of infamous video that went around YouTube a few years ago, where it was like looking at contemporary films and challenging people to, to you know, whistle the theme mm -hmm. for the character. Yeah. And you can definitely see the influence of that has crept in even to things like the Disney Star Wars movies, mm -hmm. you know, where Williams's typical use of music is abbreviated. So, I mean, you know, Ray's theme and Kylo Ren's theme are both much less flowing melodic lines and more very short signature motifs. Mm -hmm. Um, and I suspect that has to do with the um, collaborators on the new projects being of a different filmmaking generation mm -hmm. than George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, for example. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I remember, I can't remember where it was, maybe on Tavis Smiley, maybe on a, in a print article that Williams was saying that, you know, with the new movies, they wanted less notes, mm. you know. It was almost like uh, that scene in Amadeus where the emperor is like, too many notes. Well, just take out a few and it'll be perfect. And certainly I dealt with that on Mission Impossible, you know, that yeah. the production uh, team members on the production were trying to take notes out of the melodies and out of the score. Mm. So, for example, if you listen to Solomon Lane's theme as its own track, and then you listen to the ways it was simplified and reduced in the actual score uh it's you know it's it, it's a certain aesthetic that uh certain filmmakers and 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 the and production teams gravitate towards these days um with pandora it was funny because with pandora there would be cues and i would write something that was a little more incidental and mark would say no 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 i want the theme and i had to remind myself oh right yeah mark likes themes you know and it was great. It was a great um, relief to me because I didn't have to keep fighting my instinct to be thematic. So, for example, you know, the opening uh, of episode one of the pilot with uh, where, uh, where Jax is running through the woods and then her, the planet is attacked and then, you know, she flies to the school. That whole sequence, uh, you know, is the first pass of that was a little more incidentally scored mm. and mark was like no give me the theme and so the final version was every moment just sort of constructed on a different theme there's the sort of pandora theme that you know then there's the what i call the tragic theme and then there's a recurrence of the pandora theme as she flies on the jet to the school and it's a mm. combination of like the the main theme which is the you know um which is a theme that sort of goes there's the tragic theme which was like so you know just those two themes both you can hear how many notes are in them and yep. as opposed to some themes today which are just a chord mm -hmm. or just a sound and it's a some people i think consider this approach this thematic approach quote old-fashioned mm. but i do feel like it's making a comeback with you know uh, younger filmmakers or filmmakers who are nostalgic for the stuff they grew up with yeah i i'm right there with you i mean i think it's a shame that um you know in some ways lord of the rings uh, the end of the prequel trilogy right these are for me anyway they're kind of the the end of of that kind of era and after that it became as you're, as you're talking about very uh incidental type music and and kind of mono you know uniform monotone sort of music um yeah i mean there's and i don't mean to monopolize the conversation um but you know for example a film like inception made a very powerful impact mm -hmm. uh on filmmaking in general and it too many in a, in a way the entire score is based around one note yeah you know that that tremendously powerful low note in the orchestra you know it became a thing 
and it's not anybody's, you know, you, one can never predict what's going to be popular. Sure. You know, another element was the score to American Beauty, which was incredibly prevalent in temp scoring for like a decade. Mm -hmm. And it, it's not driven by a melody the way John Williams was, or, you know, Back to the Future was by Alan Silvestri, or Batman was by Danny Elfman. Um, it was driven by a, a, a mood and a color. American Beauty, and it's a different kind of composing. Um, and I'm just, again, not to monopolize the conversation, so I'll close with saying that I'm very grateful that Mark wanted this other kind of approach. Yeah. I, I too am really grateful to Mark, and also I feel, in a way, we almost, I mean, speaking about future and past, in a way, I almost think we sort of returned to the way, um, you know, like for instance, Wagner approached his many, many characters in his operas, each character to have a theme which serves as a sound signature. And uh, I'm just so grateful to Mark for loving themes and for loving musicality, a score that has a genuine musicality as in themes and tunes and harmonies and color and orchestral color. And of course, he was also very open to hybrid approaches, like for instance, that episode devoted to the backstory of Pilar, the computer girl, that's more electronic because that's her story and that's her personality. And she being the archetype of, um, you know, she being the very archetype of like a computer person, she had to have more electronics. But again, uh, the music, our approach to the music was to create these, um, to create the universe, and the universe is populated by, by, by people, by characters, with their story, with their identity, and the music had to reflect the identity. And that's what made me really happy that Mark allowed us to use our musicality and our passion for thematic writing to reinforce the identity of the characters who inhabited his world. Mm. Excellent. Yeah, yeah I mean it's. Go it was it. sort of inspiring. Sorry, I don't mean to cut out. I'm, I didn't interrupt point. because I'm more important than everybody else. Um, you are I'm more kidding. important than everyone else. Uh, stop <laughs> it. So the, um, the, you know, I don't believe that any of the Disney Star Wars scores have any synthesizer in them at all when mm. it comes to the um, underscore. Uh, you know, uh, Force Awakens has, I think, like an electronic keyboard, which is probably done on a synthesizer for the cue where Ray goes up the mountain at the end of the movie. Mm. Uh, it might. Actually, it might not. It might be the alternate that has the keyboard in it. Anyway, you know, but essentially these are orchestral scores. And, I, you know, that's just pretty amazing in 2019 to write a score for Rise of Skywalker. That's all orchestra, no synthesizer. Mm. Um, but I think there's an expectation with audiences that there is some electronic texture in contemporary scores. And from a practical point of view, Penka and I, we don't have an orchestra at our disposal, a live orchestra. So we have to use synthesizers. And as long as you're using a synthesizer, you might as well avail yourself to all the textures that are available, whether they're sampled instruments or actual synthesizer tones. But I know there's an episode, you know, I'm gonna assume that everybody who's listening to this has seen season one. Is that okay in terms of spoilers? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, in episode three, when Greg dies, mm -hmm. Um, you know, when they're scrambling through the ship to get to the escape hatch, um, it's funny because I actually had synthesized elements in the queue and, you know, I, I, I compose my music and I think of my music, I hope the way an actor thinks of their performance, which is that I turn in my work and then I leave it to the director and the producers to, to do with it what they think is right. Mm -hmm. So I give them the I give them the music that I think is right, but I give it to them in a way that if they need to make changes, they can. Mm -hmm. So certain elements are on their own tracks. And in the case of that sequence, Mark took all the synthesized the you know the sort of obviously synthesized elements out mm -hmm. and played up the orchestral elements in favor. And um, that was also interesting to me. Uh, you know, like uh, you know, here's a director who's getting rid of the synthesizers and favoring the orchestra. Mm -hmm. Now, Penka, I wonder if you could walk us through a bit of your day to day when 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 you're when you're scoring uh, an episode specifically, like when you're deep into a season on a TV show like this. What what is that day to day like for you? So um, towards the end of the season, we had literally four days to compose the music, and that's like you know thirty five minutes of music for each episode. And uh, so we had four days to score the music, and then the fifth day, Joe uh, put together all the cues into a deliverable session, and then 
dub, sixth and seventh day were, was the dub of that episode. So uh, Joe and I had to split um, the music, you know, had, had to split the responsibilities. And usually I took, if it made sense conceptually and thematically, usually I took acts one, two, and three. And then Joe took um, acts four, five, and six to kind of really bring that emotional payoff towards the end of the episode and of course we I kept sending him my music and I always had his music um, also available as a reference so um, we really worked very closely together and um, just the, the whole, our objective was to compose 35 minutes of music in four days which is incredibly I mean it's just a huge amount of work yeah. you know to compose to to sequence to program then to mix the demos so they sound fully produced and then um, dub them to pictures so this was all um, so mostly I kind of focused on the exposition, I would say the exposition, maybe like the middle two acts, but then Joe took the last uh, kind of the emotional, meaty um, sections of of, um, of the episode. Hmm. Interesting. Um, you know, I'd open this question up to both of you guys. Um, one, of, one of my personal favorite scores is the John Williams score for Revenge of the Sith. And the thing that I love absolutely the most about that soundtrack is that it literally is telling the three-act structure of the movie in the way that it's scored. Um, and I find it just a brilliant high peak for, for John Williams in his career. Um, I'm curious about, Joe, you referenced this earlier, how you like to compose to the finished product, right? But I'm curious if you guys could talk a bit about the nature of music in relation to the emotional act structure of the show. Sure. Um, I'll go first. Um, I think that to a certain degree, um, our choices as composers are dictated by the film. Mm. So in the case of Revenge of the Sith, the story structure is pretty clear. You know, Lucas's structure of the film dictates a certain structure to the music. The rescue of the Chancellor in the first act is a certain kind of, it's essentially a sort of fun rescue sequence. Um, it's got some dark moments. You know, anytime you behead somebody is not going to be a comedy <laughs> cue. Sure. Uh, and then the middle act is sort of the, um, well, there's the action of, of chasing Grievous mm -hmm. mixed with the sort of political machinations as this, as the galaxy, you know, as the sort of, as the sort of uh, intrigue of the, of the, 10 years of there, the three years of the Clone Wars and the 10 years since Phantom Menace, all that intrigue of Palpatine's plan is sort of coming to fruition, sort of coming to fruition. And that peaks with the confrontation with Mace Windu and Chancellor Palpatine in his office where Anakin finally makes the choice to turn to the dark side mm -hmm. and join, join the Sith. And then from there to the end, it's basically this tragedy, mm -hmm. this sort of uh, Faustian deal with the devil. Uh, which and that peaks with you know Anakin losing the sword fight with Obi Wan Kenobi, uh, the, the the lightsaber duel, mm -hmm. and then the last sort of denouement is the setting everything up so that Episode Four can happen. Mm -hmm. All of that is really dictated by the film, and you know you wouldn't necessarily be writing um, the kind of music he's writing for, say when Anakin is on fire, you know, that, uh, that the immolation scene, John calls it, you wouldn't be writing music like that necessarily for the sequence where they're fighting the battle droids on the bridge of Grievous's ship. Mm -hmm. But then there's also some lighter moments, you know, when C-3PO is going to get his memory wiped at the end of the film, when, when Bail Organa is like, have the droids memory wiped. There's a sort of comical moment in the score. And then Williams has to sort of deftly get out of that because we transition to, the funeral for Padme on Naboo. Mm -hmm. You know, all of those things are just musical decisions that are dictated by the film. If John was just writing a concert piece for orchestra, I'm not sure that his artistic instinct would pull him in those directions. So similarly, you know, it's the same thing with our show. You know, for example, the Jindu episode had a musical approach that I would not necessarily have taken if it weren't for the show. Another great example is even in the pilot episode, when the characters go to the airfield and, and sort of have a, have a sort of comical interaction with the officer who's in charge of 
you know, clearing different spacecraft for liftoff. And it's got mm -hmm. a slightly comical tone. It's got a pretty overtly comical tone to the music. I wouldn't necessarily have thought to put that kind of music in the score for the pilot if Mark hadn't had that scene in there. Mm -hmm. um, another example would be the end of, uh, boy, the, you know, they blur, the end of the season blurs together for me. Which episode is it where, uh, I think it's the end of episode 13. No, which one is it where Thomas says goodbye to everybody at the end of the episode? And Mark literally said he wanted sort of like the end of a Star Trek episode, like the Trouble with Tribbles, where they're on the bridge. And, you know, McCoy says something like, damn it, Spock, you human, you know, you emotionless cold fish. And then Spock says something like, really, Doctor, you must control yourself. And then, you know, the oboe would be like, you know, you know, and I literally, Mark was like, do that. Let's have that. But the Pandora version, you know, you wouldn't. I, that's that the structure of that is dictated by the show it's not necessarily by me saying uh what's the three-act structure and how must i do that mm -hmm. you know I, i'm trying to think if i've ever sort of felt like i have to add that structure to something mm -hmm. and i probably have but the, the truth is if the show is 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 structured correctly from from the storytelling point of view that part of the job is kind of done for me mm -hmm. I would say on a small, on a micro level, like each scene, the music, basically the editing takes the music by the hand and, tell, and tells us where we're supposed to go emotionally. There was one scene that was my favorite scene to score because um, it's in the episode where um, um, Jax and uh, Raylan, and they're, they're lost on the planet and they're being rescued and coming home. So there's one scene where we have, you know, Jackson Raylan and they have this unrequited love moment from Raylan, but then they reconnect with all the friends, they see Pilar and the scene becomes very warm and very friendly. So we go from the sadness of the unrequited love to this really warm moment of friendship because they see the friends and then the scene ends with Thomas uh, uh, just basically flying away on another ship into the into the darkness so mm. we have this really kind of cold tone no music no themes nothing just like a coldness because uh, thomas's emotional state is disintegrating you know his mental state is integrating so this is one example where the music really has to follow very closely what's happening in the storytelling within one scene that's like a minute and a half i mean i remember this cue being a minute and a half and i had to i had to hit all these emotional beats so that's one example of just being really sensitive to what's happening in the storytelling and also what the emotions are in the emotional beats and the music really capturing that sort of really with the laser precision and laser focus and expressing exactly that emotion that's being seen at that moment and enhancing the emotion. So mostly in TV, because most of the music is short anyway, I try to be very sensitive to try and kind of really nail that, that emotional beat. Mm, yes, absolutely. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, uh, you know, season two is, is in production. Um, are you guys going to be coming back to score season two? Yes. Awesome. Both of us. Amazing. <laughs> you think I would do this podcast if I wasn't? I don't, I don't know how these things work. I, I, <laughs> no, I just work here. I, I know. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I um, say. I just work here. <laughs> uh, what are you guys, what are you guys looking forward to with season two? What are you guys planning to do anything extremely different? Uh, you know. I, you know, Penka, again, Penka's actually read some of the scripts. I'm waiting because I want to be surprised. Yeah. <laughs> um, I saw a couple pictures on on social media of the cast, which got me very excited, actually, um, to see them all again. Seeing them in their costumes was, I was like, oh, it's, you know, that sort of got real for me suddenly. Like, it's really coming back. You know, the, the you know, I don't want to get too heavy, but, you know, with the things going on in the world right now, with with lockdowns and and travel restrictions you know I was always sort of like nervous that you know our season two was going to get uh sort of sacrificed by the necessity yeah so seeing it happen was really exciting for me uh in terms of my approach to season two it's I'm just going to follow my instincts it's kind of all I can do as a as a composer and I feel like we we have sort of set the show in motion on a musical level much the same way that, say, the costume designers set the show in motion with their costumes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think the audience has certain expectations, and I think I'm going to try to live up to those 
within the context of what I did in season one. Yeah, and just continue to build these worlds and continue to add the emotional depth and the emotional resonance of the world, of the characters. Yeah, I really, I really look forward with great joy to discover season two. I sort of feel like I'm not going to reinvent the wheel, though. You know, we, we yeah. did a lot of that heavy lifting in the first half of season one. And I would like to sort of continue to tell the story using the vocabulary that we established. Mm. Exactly, yes. No, because we established great themes that are very memorable and we established the style and the tone and the palette of instruments. So yes, we'll continue to use that and just continue to deepen it and make it relevant to the storytelling and what's happening in each, in each episode of season two. Excellent, excellent, fantastic. Um, my final question uh, would be, for the, for the kid that I didn't know whose name was in undergrad, um, what advice <laughs> would you have for uh, aspiring composers, for people out there who might want to get into the, the film business that way? Don't do it! <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the answer I gave too. <laughs> no, I would say, you know, the thing, if you wanna, if you wanna make a, if you wanna make a life out of music, uh, it's a very, it's an interesting conundrum because it's both incredibly solitary and entirely dependent on who you know. Mm. And so you have to spend a, 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 a lot of time alone developing, especially as a composer, as a musician, as a player, as a performer, it's a different answer. And I don't really know that because I don't make a living as a performer. Mm. But as a, as a composer, you have to spend, I think, a great deal of time in private study, analyzing work that you like, what, what about it do you like, how does it function, how does what you like get built up from the germ of an idea to a finished piece? And then at the same time, you have to have a sort of social interaction with the kind of people you want to work with, whether they make video games or films or television or opera or dance, you know, or rock music, any of that stuff. And you have to, because when I meet a director, you know, if I'm at a film festival, for example, and I'm talking with directors who've already made films, I'll ask them, hey, you know, how did you meet your composer? And it's always like, well, we went to college together, or uh, our kids go to the same high school or grade school, or our wives do yoga together. It's never like, oh, their agent called me and got mm -hmm. me the job. Sometimes, and also it'll be, well, I tempt the movie with their music, and then they were available, so they did it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, most of the time, I would say 75% of the time, it's a social reason. And they knew the they knew the composer socially, and that's how they worked together. And that, to me, those are the two important things: is it's who you know and what you know. I totally second Joe, and I would say focus on the craft of composing music, and you have to focus for many years because it takes a while for your voice to emerge, for your style to emerge. So really become a very solid composer. Then the sense for, a sense of drama is really important because we tell stories through music. So you have to have a a really well-developed sense of storytelling, dramatic storytelling, you know, just shaping a scene emotionally with music. And then uh, cultivate friendships. I mean, host parties, invite people. It's really all about friends opening door to the talent. Because we, we work in a business where somebody who wants to champion your talent is going to refer you or give you a little break or a little opportunity. So it's really the business of opening people who know your friends opening the doors for you to walk in I mean, and uh, yeah yeah I, I, in conjunction with that i'll look at i'll point to two different composers one is john williams and one is michael giacchino in michael's case you know as talented as he was is and as as uh musical and and and, and uh, enthusiastic about composing as he is if you take jj abrams out of that equation uh it's a different story because jj you know, they worked together and then JJ advocated for Michael on pretty much any project that came through Bad Robot's door, whether mm -hmm. JJ was directing or producing, you know, no matter what. And that relationship, you know, helped Michael expand his, the number of people he worked with. Similarly with John Williams, if you take Steven Spielberg out of the equation, John Williams is the guy who did like Gidget movies yeah. and some goofy comedies. But without Spielberg, not only do you not have Jaws, which wins him an Oscar, but you, he's, he doesn't meet George Lucas and you don't have Star Wars. And, and without that sort of one-two punch of Jaws and Star Wars, you don't have the career that he had, you know? Mm -hmm. In many ways, Goldsmith is sort of an example of a composer of just as much quality as John Williams, but not the sort of those two key relationships that Williams had. 
and Goldsmith's career is much more sort of littered with dud movies and weird projects and things that kept him from being sort of the composer laureate that Williams ended up being mm. in Hollywood, you know? Yeah, I'm always surprised looking at his resume, just all the different type of things that he's done over the years. Yeah. Uh, but sorry, his music his music is not genius oh no jerry goldsmith's music is absolutely genius i mean what oh, you yeah. touch it's yeah, just musically so deep and rewarding so basically what joe is describing is that element of luck or serendipity and uh, that that is i mean you just meet somebody who has that kind of vision and drive and they build a career and as a composer you're attached you're their friend they looking on all projects so i would say there is also an element of luck but uh, i mean i enjoy working well, look, on a yeah that's to say with you, Penka, you know, I, you, you, you and I had been sort of like on the periphery of each other's awareness. You know, I knew your husband also. Yeah. Um, I knew Nathan first, who you'd worked with on uh, Need for Speed, right? Yeah. And then I also knew, and then also my music editor, John Finkley, was always singing your praises. Yeah. Uh, as well as uh, the, the brilliant orchestrator, Conrad Pope, who would, who would always speak highly of you at our at our workshops in Vienna to orchestration students mm -hmm. and you know so when the time came for this it was like that uh perfect storm of of you and I had sort of you know and there had been a movie I couldn't do which I recommended you for and you hit it out of the park so between all those things it was the perfect time for us to work together but if probably if I didn't know your husband you know that it, it wouldn't have gotten to that point you know what i mean or if you know yeah. mark and his wife hadn't known you guys you know yeah so it really is a it's a constellation and all the stars have to align yeah mark all, mark has known me again through my husband daniel and um, naomi also but it's also remember devil's whisper this is the one time you took a chance to recommend me on a job and then and then um the director was really happy so kind of got reassured that you know that i could deliver right. and but I recommended you because, you know, Nate had sung your praises, John Finkley had sung your praises, Conrad Pope had sung your praises. It was like, I, you know, I had every confidence that you weren't gonna drop the ball. Um, yeah. And, but it was because of the social aspect of it as much as it was the professional aspect, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. Cause I, you know, I knew, I knew Adam Rip, the director of Devil's Whisper, I knew John Finkley and I knew Conrad socially as much as I know them professionally. Yeah. So the moral of the story is make many friends. And I mean, <laughs> truly meaningful friendships, not just networking and collecting business cards, which is kind of useless, yeah. but really make meaningful friendships where you get to know people in a social context, you get to know them personally, uh, you know, be very intuitive, you know, just intuit about people's dreams, hopes, because we are all in this town, in this world, driven by our dreams. And especially in Hollywood, like everybody has a dream and everybody has a project. And when you support people in their projects, regardless of what the budget is, or regardless of what the circumstances are, then then they and you're building relationships, and these relationships are powerful and they and they're lasting. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, on that on that somewhat high note, we'll uh, <laughs> wrap things up. Uh, do you guys have anything uh, new coming in the pipeline pretty soon? You wanna you wanna plug? Well, I'm always working on um, audio dramas for Big Finish Productions in oh, the nice. UK. Oh, nice! That's awesome. And they make yeah, they make Doctor Who. Uh, they started off doing like Doctor Who content with with actors who had left the show, um, yeah. and they've expanded into other properties. They've done uh, the British TV show The Avengers with John Steed and Emma Peel. They do uh, Torchwood, which is a Doctor Who spinoff, and they do. Uh, They've started doing Space 1999, so I'm going to be scoring. Uh, I'm going to be writing music for a Space 1999 box set later this year, wow. as well as uh, more Doctor Who related material. I'm sure so Mark is very jealous. That. Oh, That's wow. awesome! That's great. Congratulations, Joe. This is really oh. wonderful. Thank wow. you. What about I you, scored, Pekka? I scored two VR games and two mobile games. They always, uh, you know, put the bread on the table and the music is really fun. So the one mobile uh, mobile game has a score. It's with fish, like, you know, you're collecting fish and it's a, it's a little uh, iPhone game. I mean, 
and uh, the music is like Little Women by Alexander Desplat, which gave me a chance to really uh, do this completely different style that I wouldn't necessarily do on a project because I'm known for kind of more hybrid work. That was really fun. And then the VR games, once is futuristic, so that was very kind of electronica. And then the other was actually a little little trip into EDM land, um, mm -hmm. very purely electronic music. It's, it's fun, and I just really enjoy uh, working in mobile games and VR because the music is always different, always makes me step out of my comfort zone and uh, and they put the bread on the table. So I'm very grateful. It's fantastic. Can people get in touch with you through social media? Where can, where can they find you guys? Always, yeah. We're yep. on Facebook and Twitter. We're like very active on social media. Yeah, I'm on Facebook and Twitter as well. I have yeah. Instagram, but I don't understand it because I'm old. <laughs> so. Same with me. It's fine. I don't and, understand uh, it either. And maybe, maybe I'm, uh, maybe I'm old. I don't know. It's, yeah, you're no. not old. What's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, no, then you're not old either. It's, uh, well, no, we're not old. We're we're young at heart. We should definitely <laughs> mention the soundtrack. It's available from La La Land on uh, yep. Spotify, iTunes, YouTube. It's wonderful music. I highly recommend it. And uh, it's just really so the spot, the soundtrack is good. It's called Pandora Season One. Uh, that's the title and uh, you know both Joe has his soundtracks on iTunes and I also do tons of stuff on iTunes so we're pretty much on like all digital platforms yep. they have our music and it's really worth checking yep. out Spotify Pandora all the streaming ones too have a, a great deal of my work so and Penkas as well so yes yeah. and I, I cannot emphasize uh, and encourage people to pick up the soundtrack enough I mean it's a fantastic CD there's a, a plethora of information in the liner notes it, it's a fantastic set um, so I cram we crammed as much music on it as we could. I think it's like right up to the limit of Red Book standards. So it was great. I mean, I, I have to say I was always a little disheartened by the Star Wars soundtracks because they usually only have like 37 minutes worth of worth of material. And I'm like, but there's two and a half hours. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> I need more. So, uh, yeah, the CD is is so full and so amazing. Um, please pick it up today and support the show and support these guys by buying their other things on other uh, digital platforms. Uh, Joe, Pinka, thank you so much for being here today. This was fantastic. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Peter, so much for the honor to be your guests. And I look forward, we look forward to season two. Absolutely, me too. And you can check us out again, listeners, on uh, Twitter and Instagram, uh, on Pandora Writers, or uh, at Series Pandora. And uh, leave, us, leave us five stars on, on iTunes when this comes out. And we will talk to you again very soon. Thank you, guys. Bye.